So today we're going to be having our last topical sermon for a while before we jump into another uh, part of the Bible. But um, if, if I haven't done yours, if you made a suggestion to me on a topical sermon and it hasn't been done, it is still on the list and we might come back to that one a bit later in the year. We're going to get into God's Word, but before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we just pray today that you will help us to seek you truly. That as we come to your word, we might realise that what you offer us is far greater than what anything else can offer or anyone else can offer. That when we come to your word, we realise that you give us forgiveness, restoration, a hope of eternal life. We pray that you'll help us to never compromise your gospel, the gospel by which we're saved, for a lesser gospel that promises to solve all the world's problems, but that doesn't find its basis in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've talked about race, we've talked about sexuality, we've talked about money. What else is there that we can bring up that people like to argue about? <laughs> Funnily enough, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about footy. So, instead today we're going to talk about politics. Footy is politics. Yes, well, that's true. We're going to read from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear for the one, of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants. Agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Give everyone what you owe them. I want to talk about politics today because I see it being a growing issue in the world and in our church. Now, of course, politics has been around forever. But as we look around the world today, I think it's fair to say that it's a growing source of division, a growing source of identity, and related to that, a growing source of idolatry. 
Now, I, of course, like everybody in the world, I have my own political views, but up here, up the front, I pledge today to know only what Scripture says about politics. Now, of course, that's difficult because government and politics looks very different in our day to the world of the Bible. There was no two-party representative democracy in Jesus' day. And so there's nothing on principles of how we should vote because there was no voting. There's nothing in principles of, you know, political lobbying because you try and tell the king what he wants to do and he might, what he ought to do and he might decide that what he ought to do is throw you in prison. Uh, so things were very different in those days. But just because there's nothing explicitly about politics and about a modern demo, uh, democratic representative government like we have today, that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have things to say about our attitudes towards leadership, our attitudes towards those who govern us, and our attitudes towards one another with regard to all of those things. There are three, I think, there are probably many more, but there are three principles about politics, about government, that I want to draw our attention to today, to what the Bible teaches us about politics. The first thing I want to say is that politics matters. Government matters. Sometimes for those of us who are in the church, there can be a bit of a temptation to become isolationist, to pull away from all of these things when we see others that might become too invested in it and say, well, Jesus is going to come in the end and everything else in the meantime is just details. Which is true, but they are important details. And they're things that will have a bearing on the society around us. So the first thing I see in Romans 13, 1 to 5, is that government does matter. That we're not called as the church to be isolationists. That we're not called to set up our own uh, you know, independent entity where we're free from any political interference. We're told instead that God has established, that God has instituted every government. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The, author the authorities that exist have been established by God. It was so important, Paul said it twice. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So the one thing that I can say for sure about modern politics is that God has instituted the Morrison government for this season. God has instituted Joe Biden as President of America for this season. Well, how do we know that? Because there is no authority that exists which God has not established. Which means that however much we might want to believe 
that it's the case. There are no accidents. Why has God instituted those governments right now? Because he has. That God has instituted a government is no guarantee that they will be a good government or the best possible government or even, you know, better than the opposition. But it means that they're the ones that God have chosen, has chosen right now. I think a wonderful illustration of that is uh, in the book of Exodus. We meet this Pharaoh who absolutely will not let God's people go. And God tells Moses, I have raised up this Pharaoh. I have put him in place. So that because of his stubbornness and his refusal to see reason, my glory will be displayed in the way that I rescue you. So God can have his own reasons for putting governments in place and it doesn't always mean that the government will be kind to the church. Often, oftentimes that hasn't been the case. It won't mean that the government is just towards God's people. But it means that God has put them in place. And therefore, as Paul says, we need to be subject to them. Now, there's no guarantee, as I said, that a government will be a good government. But Paul knew that. Paul knew that far better than we do. I mean, Paul got thrown in prison by Roman governors a lot more times than I've ever been thrown in prison. He was beaten. You know, government-sanctioned beatings far more times than I've ever been beaten before he wrote this letter to the Romans. He was no stranger to the idea of unjust government. And yet Paul says, there is no government except which God has instituted. And it's not just Paul as well. Peter tells us the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Instead, live as God's slaves. Now, there's a whole lot we could unpack in that passage. But he finishes off with this. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. The question then naturally comes, but hold on, Paul and Peter didn't always do what the government said. They didn't always follow the law. So should we listen to them? Here's Peter being told by the, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the leaders in Jerusalem, that they should not preach the gospel. They shouldn't preach any more in the name of this Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. 
The thing is, Peter and Paul and all of the others, they only ever disobeyed what governments told them, what rulers told them, where they were explicitly called to reject Christ's commands. They had a strong hierarchy in mind. God, government, and then us. And so the government can tell us what to do. That, that was the principle. But if God has put them in place, then if they tell us not to do something which God has told us to do, they've stepped out of their place in the hierarchy. They can safely be, well, maybe not safely be ignored, but they can rightly be ignored. But you see, he is quite clear that disobedience, that rebellion, that slander on any other grounds is sin. Anyone who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. To honour our government, to give, as Peter said, if you owe taxes, give taxes. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. What does it mean for us to honour the government in a society which considers slandering the government to be kind of a, um, yeah, that, that's part of our national heritage, that we don't take things too seriously, that we cut down the tall poppies, that we take, that we criticise and uh, put down. But if we want to honour the government, that informs our language. That informs the way we talk about not just the ruling government, I think also the opposition. It doesn't mean that we can't say this legislation that they're bringing in, we think is bad legislation, which will have this consequence, this consequence and this consequence. But it does mean not just coming up with spurious claims that the opposition that we don't like are always evil because they're the opposition that we don't like. Honour for government, I think, informs our use of social media. That when we use social media, when we share political things, that, number one, we steer away from those sort of things that are personal attacks on particular leaders rather than uh, criticisms of policies, of things that they do. It means staying away from inflammatory headlines and I tell you, I'm friends with a number of people in this church on Facebook and I've read a number of the articles that you've shared about various political things over the times and some of the articles have been really excellent. But with the headline that's on there and how inflammatory it is, I'd suggest maybe steering around that one and finding one that's a bit more balanced that isn't going to drive a further wedge into the divisions that politics brings between people. Honour for government, as Paul showed us, means that we need to change our attitude towards taxation. Now, Shayla, is Shayla here today? No? Working at the tax office, I'm sure she'd be able to tell us what everybody's attitude is as soon as the, the subject of tax is brought up. Ugh. 
government's taken my money. And yet Paul is very strong that if we owe tax, we give tax. And we're very blessed, really, in our country that despite the fact that I certainly don't think our government always gets it right, that we have some idea of where those taxes are going and that it's going towards schooling and hospitals and not going towards Caesar's, you know, private 300-storey palace, which is the way that it would be in the ancient world that Paul is talking to us about. It means requiring a high burden of proof for any accusation against our leaders and not just sharing things because it's embarrassing for the side that we don't like. It means not calling evil good. It doesn't mean, as I said, being silent about bad laws. It means grace and understanding is necessary. Of understanding that I truly believe that both sides of government are setting out to do what they think is right. Sometimes what they think is right is definitely not what I think is right. Sometimes what they think is right is not what the Bible says is right. But when we have grace, when we have understanding, when we try to understand why is it that people think that this policy will help, this law will help, this tax will help, that enables us to have a conversation that can actually go somewhere rather than just a, you're ruining this country. No, you're ruining this country. And that just goes nowhere. So first policy, government does matter. The Bible tells us government does matter and that as hard as it, as it sometimes is, as hard as it was for Paul, that even means honouring and respecting our government. Now, the second principle I want to bring out is that the church should be diverse. Jesus has called his church from every tribe and every nation. He's called Jew and Gentile, male and female, Roman, Scythian, slave and free. And the church is to be a politically diverse place too. From Matthew chapter 10, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I've highlighted a couple of people in there. Who can tell me what a tax collector and a zealot have in common? Absolutely nothing. The zealots were a group of uh, Jewish people who were opposed to Roman occupation of their lands and they were opposed to it to the point of taking up arms against the Romans and trying to kick them out. The tax collectors, on the other hand, they were Jewish people who were commissioned by the Roman government to go and shake down their fellow Jews for money to give to the Roman government. There could not be two, two types of people who were more opposed to one another 
than a tax collector and a zealot. And it's interesting that this is recorded in Matthew's Gospel as well. Matthew obviously knew that there was something that didn't quite fit about Jesus calling him a tax collector and a zealot into the same family. And yet it worked. They had nothing in common politically. And more and more our modern politics seems the same as people on one side of the aisle and on the other are driven further and further away from one another. Labour and Liberal in this country or, you know, the further left, the, the Greens or the further right with one nation. And then over in America, of course, you've got the left is the Democrats, the right is the Republicans. And frankly, I'm astonished these days that we care so much about American politics because I grew up in a time where everyone was like, well, that's all just, that's their business, not ours. But it's becoming much more important over here. And we see that over there and over here, there seems to be this growing divide, this growing unwillingness to even hear or understand where one another are coming from. And yet, just in case I haven't said anything controversial enough yet, there is no party, there is no government in the world that perfectly aligns with Jesus with all of the things that he calls us to be as a nation. And so, if any of us have the temptation to say, if you vote such and such, you are not a Christian, then you've fallen victim to idolatry. It's, it's as serious as that that Jesus calls all kinds of people and there is no Jesus party. Indeed, it's not a question of what side Jesus is on. It's a question of who is on his side. I like this quote from, uh, from the book of Joshua back in the Old Testament. Joshua sees an angel, a commander of the Lord sent to him. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. Whose side is Jesus on? He's on Jesus' side. And it's up to the rest of us to seek to be on his side too. We see in politics, without you know, just in broad generalisations, the right is traditionally strong on morality, strong on freedom of conscience, strong on the rights of the unborn uh, in the face of the, the uh, abortion debate. The left is traditionally strong ethically on care for the oppressed and the marginalised, for being stewards of the environment and for looking after the, the aliens and wanderers, the, the refugees and migrants in our society. And all of those are gospel qualities. And so we're, and we as Christians, we're made differently. 
And sometimes we weigh some of those things differently and we vote differently. And in an ideal world, this means that covers all of the bases of the things that God calls us to be as a nation. But it's only an ideal world if people on on opposite sides of the aisle are willing to work together. And that's where I think the church can certainly show the rest of the nation how that is done. We should be able to. Because the same Jesus who can bring a zealot and a tax collector together can bring us aside over our political differences. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Now, fair cop, in its original context, Paul was talking about the Jews and the Gentiles there. But I don't see any reason why that language of the wall of hostility should apply only to that situation. When Jesus becomes our highest allegiance, when we follow him and put everything else on a lesser plane, then he, divide, uh, then he destroys all sorts of dividing walls of hostility and brings all sorts of very different people together. And so I want to give us a challenge today a test of whether Jesus is our truest allegiance. Do we find that we're closer to Christians whose politics are different to our own than non-Christians whose politics are the same as mine? So, let's say I'm a Labour voter. And does that mean that I'm closer to non-Christian Labour voters or am I closer to Christian Liberal voters? Who do I have more in common with? Has Christ destroyed that dividing wall of hostility in my own mind, in my own thoughts? That takes God's work in us. It takes His grace And I wanted to put this one in there. This is a very, very, very important verse in the context of politics. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. But as we move into the end of this message this morning, While it's right and good that we have different political views in the church and that we're brought together by what is greater, which is what Jesus has done for us, I do want to finish with a warning. I think for many people, politics, parties, and these days particularly some party leaders, are having these cults of personality formed around them. They're becoming idols in the world but even 
in the church. And that's something the Bible definitely tells us about. We're to have no other gods, nothing else comes first in our hopes about what will bring salvation, about what will set the world right than Jesus and what he has promised us. I'll tell you, if you can't criticise the side that you support from a gospel perspective, then you have an idol. If no party covers everything that Jesus calls us to be, then that means every party falls short in some way, doesn't it? If we as Christians can't criticise the side we vote for, we have an idol. If you defend something when your side does it and criticise something when the other side does it, you have an idol. And I think sometimes we need to be very careful because if we only follow a highly partisan news source, he might just have an idol. You want to know what's a fun experience? Go and read The Guardian and Sky News on the same topic and you won't even realise it's the same topic. And we do, we need to be careful of the voices that we listen to. And can I just say, we need to be most important, most cautious, most careful of the ones that we agree with We can see the biases we don't agree with. They stand out like that. It's the ones who are on our side of the fence that are the ones that are more likely to lead us astray. And on that topic, we do need to be careful of false prophets in the media, in the news. You may say to yourselves, this is back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. There have been some political prophecies, some very strong statements, this will happen or this will not happen. There's been the whole QAnon thing over in America with a number of different prophecies of on this day these things will happen. Well, Deuteronomy tells us that if you prophesy something will happen and it doesn't, then we don't have to listen to you. There are a lot of Gospels out there. The the ABC and the Guardian, they have their Gospel where what makes the world right is good governance, that, um, you know, more policy, more legislation, more things will bring us to the place where we ought to be. And they have a tendency in that to see things in terms of tolerance versus oppression. Then you've got the Gospel of Murdoch on the other side of the aisle, where the greatest good, the greatest flourishing is... The, the prosperity and personal freedom from regulation, the tendency to see things in terms of nationalism versus what's corrupting what is good. And those things are both different from the true gospel. The true gospel that says the only thing that will save, the only thing that will set this world right is Jesus. Jesus. 
that Jesus has taken the punishment that our sins deserve on the cross. Therefore, everyone who believes in him will have everlasting life. And everyone who rejects him will face his wrath and his punishment. That is the only way that a utopia, a perfect world can be made, is when sin has been dealt with. The greatest issue is sin, and not just the sins that we most dislike, but all sins. Now, sometimes that might lead us to be uh, defeatist, to say, well, there's no hope of an earthly utopia, so therefore we shouldn't try and make anything better on this world. I don't think that's true. And I think that's where politics has an important place as we seek to make this world what it can be. But remember, our ultimate hope is not that the right person will be elected and that the right policies will be put in place. Our ultimate hope is that Jesus is in charge and he will make all things new. Our greatest hope is that we will be a new creation, restored to the Father who we rejected, who we turned away from, but who still loved us even when we were in opposition to him. That's our first and our highest allegiance, for our kingdom is not of this world. And that's the gospel that we have to share and the one that should take the most of our efforts to bring people to Jesus, not to my party. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to be wise. For wisdom comes from you. Help us to take seriously what your Bible teaches us. As we noted, it can be difficult sometimes to know where to stand when the governments of our day seem very different from the governments that we meet, that we find in the Bible. Help us to remember what you've told us, that no government is instituted, whether democratic or otherwise, that has not been instituted by you, that has not been established by you. Help us to take seriously the charge that as we show honour and respect and even give our taxes to our government, that in so doing we are actually worshipping you, that we're recognising that you are the one who has put them in their place and therefore respect shown to them is respect shown to you. We pray that you will help us to be wise when it comes to believers whose politics are different from our own. Let us learn from them rather than arguing with them. And let us celebrate the fact that in Jesus we have a community that can bring together a zealot and a tax collector. We pray that you will help us to put our hope most of all, first and foremost, in Jesus. And we can seek to do good things in our lives and even through our politics that might make this world better. But that our truest hope, our only hope, of what will make the world right is in you.
We thank you for that we have that hope. In Jesus' name. Amen.